Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Today's episode is about student rentals and speaking with Jamil Rahimtula, a realtor investor for 10 plus years and an expert in the student rental markets. It was saturated at one point, and I think it has made a huge comeback. So this is a great episode to talk about that. And don't forget, Investors and Entrepreneurs of Canada, which is the group that I am a part of. We are hosting monthly events in Burlington at Hagerty's Garage and Social. I am a member there, and uh, we host monthly events. So the next one is November 16th. It is a speed networking event. Super fun. And if you are a real estate investor a business owner, an entrepreneur, this is going to be an opportunity for you to connect with others. And we uh, we actually had this before a couple months ago, and it was a ton of fun. So we're going to be doing it again. We're going to be doing it every other month is going to be speed networking. And market calendars, December 14th, we are hosting another event at Hagerty's that is about scaling and growing your small business, whether you're an entrepreneur, um, you know, it can be around real estate, but it could also be around your small business and something alongside that you are actively working on. Um, that's going to be another great event. So November 16th and December 14th, if you go to uh, midtermrentalproperties.com and you go to the events section, you'll see and you'll be able to buy tickets. Uh, I believe that they are two for one for the time being. So I hope uh, you guys enjoy the podcast and uh, don't forget to come out to our events and meet us in person. Thanks so much. Jamil, welcome back to the show. I think it's your second time on and excited to talk to you again about what's happening in the real estate economy, the industry these days, but welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to dive deep into this space. Awesome. So for those that may not have heard your first episode, maybe just do like a quick overview of who you are, how you got started in real estate, and then we'll dive right into it. Yeah, absolutely. So I started off probably good 10, 15 years ago, interested in real estate, started off with student rentals, saw the cash flow opportunities, and then JV'd with some partners and we bought our first, bought our second and third, grew into a bigger business of, of buying flips. And then, you know, fast forward to career, family moved away, COVID kicked in, decided to, to put the career on a bit of a hold, focus on real estate full time. Um, in the interim, I did uh, pursue construction, education and construction technology. So I learned more about that and decided at that point that I could offer my services as an investor focused realtor to people because I was just being OCD with working with previous realtors and saying, okay, I'm just too hypersensitive to questions and not being able to get the answers. So I said, oh, you know, I might as well jump in and for myself and for my client base that I could help them with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, and I, I know I say it a lot on these shows, but working with investor focused experts, whether it's a realtor, mortgage broker or lawyer is going to be key in getting you to that next level and helping you scale because it's definitely very different from, you know, somebody just purchasing a house for themselves to live in. Very yeah, I, it's very you know, different, right? You know. And they don't teach you this stuff in school. They also don't teach you how to be a realtor for investors in school. You're, you either have to learn it. You've got to do it either, you know, through doing it yourself or, you know, or, or get into the industry by, you know, understanding, doing networking events, going to, you know, hiring somebody. But there's nothing in realtor school that teaches you this part of it. 
Absolutely. The emotional decision of buying your first home or your personal home versus an investment where you just strictly see it as a business and analyzing it from, you know, a, a lens of where's best use value for the property, where's the end use, you know, ARV, all the fun stuff involved. It's a, it's a completely different sector of, of being a, a investor-focused realtor. Sure. Sure, for sure. So I was reading the other day and I can't remember where it was, but it's like almost... 900,000 students that this government, I will leave my comments about how much I, you know, hate this government to the side for now, but 900,000 students coming into this country to go to university or college in the next year. That's shocking. What are your thoughts? Yeah, student rentals is, I guess, the newest and hottest thing that people are looking at. It's one of those things where it's always been discussed, where even in recessionary times or times of where tight, you people focus on educating themselves more. And there's always a ratio between number of beds a university or a college has versus enrollment. And uh, the number of international students that are enrolled into these schools has, has skyrocketed. And in relation to housing, purpose-built housing has grown substantially though the supply is very limited. And what we're finding is like off-campus built rentals are also growing aimed at students, but also we're seeing young professionals are coming out and where it's blurring the lines between student neighborhoods and young professionals. And what, and, and this is especially true for people who are in the Airbnb space or midterm space, we're finding that rising rental rates in student housing has led to, you know, overcrowding in homes and where students are essentially teaming up and saying, well, look, we'll take a, a, a two bedroom flat apartment and they'll stick like four people in there. And so this is concerning from a safety and regulatory standpoint. And, and there's some places like London, Waterloo, and now in Hamilton, where they're creating these, you know, bylaws where they're trying to ensure there's some safety in these houses. But, you know, just yesterday I was in a meeting and we were talking about rental room prices for rooms. And it's crazy because I know that you have a property that's farther away from Hamilton or in, in Mac area. And I'm hearing people are paying $900 for a room. And yeah. this is with a bus ride to McMaster. Those numbers are not, those have shifted so much in the last six months that, you know, we were talking last time we talked, I think we even mentioned like 750 for a bedroom. And that was close within the, the neighborhood. So you can imagine that drive for that price point, what it's doing to a, for landlords to seeing the attractive price point saying, okay, well, whoa, that's a lot of money. I don't need to do, you know, I, I can pivot as we talk about, you know, pivoting. So that's kind of my standpoint is saying that there is lots of opportunity and it kind of, it maybe justifies the price points for people to enter into the student space or creating student space. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, an opportunity for cash flow with the student rentals now, more so than prior to the pandemic, because a lot of people, a lot of investors got rid of their student rentals uh, when all the students left and converted them into long term rentals and or sold them along the way. And so there's such a shortage. There is an insane amount of demand. And, you know, and there's also an insane amount of people that are coming to go to school. But I think they don't realize that once they're here, it's not that easy to get housing. And we've had some students that were, you know, for example, like one person that's renting a basement in one of our units, which is not that close to Mac at all, mm -hmm. was a hotel. 
And many people are living in hotels right now, which is insane because they cannot find housing. I have no idea what the solution is, but I'll tell you whatever it is, it's not going to happen overnight. I think we're going to be in, you know, more, you know, there's going to be less, less supply and there's going to be more demand with all of the people coming in. And, you know, they look at it as a business, right? They want, you know, the universities, the colleges to make money, et cetera. But like, you've got to give them a bit of a heads up of like, here's what you're probably expecting. But it's shocking how many people are saying that they're in a hotel right now that are actually applying to my units. Yeah. And we, you know, with immigration is driving the population growth, as you mentioned, and we know that essentially new immigrants tend to rent first before buying their home. And there's cultural preferences around how they, the housing needs or multi-general housing is seen. And I'm seeing this across the board from first-time buyers to the renters. And, you know, you're absolutely right. It is, I haven't seen this kind of influx in all my time in this space. And, you know, I'm seeing lineups outside of homes for places that shouldn't be renting for that amount. But, and it, it is because there's a desperation for places and that, and there's a disconnect there between the promise of great education, the promise of what we have to offer here versus reality of, okay, well, you know, you might be under a bridge kind of thing scenario because there's nothing available. So yeah, it is a scary scenario. And the fact that we're seeing an oversupply of luxury new builds and many new condo builds are focusing on these luxury units, the demand for affordable housing isn't being met. And this is where, you know, investors and that specifically can add units or utilize lodging, rooming houses, or what have you to support it is going to be where I think the market is trending towards. Because, you know, I'm in a few groups where I see a lot of immigrants or new students, and they're willing to put multiple mattresses in a room and share because it's culturally normal. Now, that, and that's just, I think that's where we're getting to, which is an unfortunate bedroom community. And that's unfortunate, but that's where I'm, I'm seeing the conversation going because they just have to make do of what they're here for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there, do you think in your opinion that it's, this is like all the universities, all the schools around the country, do you think that it's, you know, predominantly in the, the GTA universities that this is happening or like, what are your thoughts? Like, what are you seeing? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hi, if you currently have a mortgage with an advanceable line of credit component with any of the big banks, such as the step mortgage with Scotiabank, the whole power plan with CIBC, the RBC home line plan, BMO's home owner ready line, or the National Bank All-in-One, then this message is for you. By now, you would have received a letter from your bank outlining upcoming changes to the Advanceable Mortgage products that will take effect on November the 1st. But before I get into the details of the letter and how this change impacts you, I'd like to go through a quick refresher of what an Advanceable Mortgage is. Essentially, an advanceable mortgage combines a mortgage with a line of credit, which acts like a home equity line of credit, referred to as a HELOC. And with the banks, a HELOC or line of credit cannot exceed 65% of the value, but between the mortgage and the line of credit, together they can get up to 80% of the home value at the time the loan was approved. 
This 80% is referred to as the global limit. And as you make payments towards your mortgage, the credit limit on the line would increase in an amount equal to the principal that you're paying down on the mortgage. When you make a mortgage payment, essentially, you uh, basically have two components. It's split into two components. There is principal pay down and there is an interest component. So let's take an example. Let's say that your mortgage payment is $1,000 and out of that $1,000, 700 goes towards paying down your principal and 300 goes towards paying down the interest. Now, the $700 is what I'm referring to here. That is the amount of principal pay down that would increase the limit on the line of credit by an equivalent amount if you have an advanceable mortgage product. So you're essentially reaccessing what you've paid down on the mortgage through the line of credit. And this is a great feature that many homeowners and investors alike um, enjoy. Now, 15 months ago, OSFI, the financial services regulator, introduced a new role uh, to basically limit how consumers or borrowers with advanceable mortgages can reborrow any paid down principal. And basically what they want is they want, they don't want um, anybody to reborrow money above 65% of the value of the property at the time the loan was approved. This change is going to take effect on November the 1st for the big six banks and uh, January the 1st for most other federally regulated lenders. OSFI expects that any and all lending above 65% of the loan-to-value, which cannot exceed 80%, will be both amortizing and non-advanceable. That's what the regulator says. Also, the principal payments applied to the portion above the 65% should be matched by a reduction in the overall authorized limit or the global limit until that global limit reduces to 65%. Okay, I had to read this 20 times before I understood what this really means. It was easier for me to actually understand Spanish than to understand what this is all about. So let me walk you through what it means through an example. Recently, I received my Scotia step uh, letter informing me of the change. I'm not going to read it all, but will highlight the key paragraph that says the following. Beginning November 2023, your step global limit will gradually reduce to 65% over the next 25 years. This will take effect through monthly reductions of $157 to your step global limit. Now, let's get into the translation of what that really means. Consider a case where a borrower has a million dollars house in a combined global limit of mortgages and line of credits as follows. Mortgage component number one is at $150,000. Mortgage component number two is at $250,000. And uh, the client has a $400,000 revolving line of credit. So altogether, we're at 80%. The rule essentially says the following. And here's the key concept. The key concept is that the principal payments applied to any portion above 
should be matched by a reduction in the overall global limit until this overall limit shrinks to 65%. In this example, mortgage number two of $250,000 along with the line of credit of $400,000 make up 65% of the value of the house, which is a million dollars. So any dollars you pay down on mortgage component number one, which is the portion representing more than the 65%, under the old rules, it used to advance over to the line, but under the new rules will no longer advance over to the line and instead that will gradually shrink your borrowing ability from recycling within that 80% box to eventually, you know, getting to a 65% over time. So that's the idea here. They're trying to limit how much money you can recycle within that 80% so that gradually over time that amount shrinks to 65% is what this really says. In the Scotia example that I shared with you earlier, the $157 that I read in the letter is basically that gradual monthly reduction in the global limit. It is not something that I'm going to pay out uh, for uh, you know, myself. Instead, as I pay down the mortgage, Instead of being able to re-access that 157 on the line of credit, it will now go towards shrinking the overall global limit from 80% to 65%. So here's the thing. This amount will differ from one client to another. It will differ from one bank to another. But ultimately, the end game is the same for everybody who has this product. Borrowers will end up with readvisable mortgages that have a global limit that cannot exceed 65% over time. And if they're starting at 80% over time, that number will go down to 65%. And the difference is that some lenders will get you there uh, more, you know, uh, like faster than some other lenders. So if you're readvanceable mortgage, if you got an advanceable mortgage before September 15th, 2012, that's when this B20 regulation took effect, that product will be grandfathered. You don't have to write. So none of what I'm talking about here applies to you. But everyone uh, who set up their product past that deadline will be impacted. So if you decide to refinance today, and you qualify for an 80% with a mortgage and a HELOC, yes, you're going to start at 80%, but over time, again, this will bring you to the 65%. So this rule applies for new uh, advanceable mortgages that are being set up as we speak. If you have received this letter from your bank and you would like to explore new options to continue to Access Capital, reach out to my team at info at streetwisemortgages.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, I, I can't speak to uh, outside of the province here, uh, but I can definitely tell you that from my conversations with um, other investors in all the way out to Windsor, you know, to, you know, London in, in our neck of the woods, we are seeing pent up demand um, and uh, not enough supply. 
They can't, they can, you know, even in places where it's considered very affordable, there is a major demand, even up north, you know, you know, talking about Sudbury Timmins area, we're hearing about a lot of immigrants from, you know, South Asia predominantly that are, are just taking up the housing, whatever they can get. And it's essentially the acceptance rates for these universities and colleges are higher than what's available. And they just have to figure out a place to stay because that's a universal need is a roofing over your head. So from what I can, what I understand in Ontario, at least it is, there is, there is an issue for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you've got student rentals yourself, right? Yeah. Um, What do you think? I mean, because obviously, you know, it's a strategy like others and there's pros and cons. You know, what are some of the pros that you are seeing, you know, from being a, a student rental housing investor? Yeah, the pros is, you know, definitely cash flow because you're, you are not necessarily dealing with, you know, long-term tenants necessarily. You might get a second year student or a third year student after they're in their fourth year and they take until, you know, you're, they're out, they're moving out. They have to find, they're essentially finding another place to live. So you, your way the market rents shift, as I said, you can allocate that price point and you're instantly dealing with and you're not dealing with the rental increases that are you know 2024 is two and a half percent inflation's at five percent so you're not really impacted versus you know you're actually getting cash flow consistently that's one pro definitely the other fact is that usually you have some vacancies in the summer so if you are including utilities in your rentals you have quite low expenses in the offset for the for the regular school year and you know that that's kind of my two bases is heavily cash flow that's the benefit um, of that and yeah, i think that's where i'm finding finding it versus your long-term renters where you have to deal with L, long landlord tenant board issues you know a lot of complaints and if you're doing international students they tend to be very much pay the rent or they'll pay six months up front and you're not really you don't really hear from them which is great from that point of view yeah. And I don't think they're going to try to play the system against landlords either. I think they want to come, they want to go to school. They, you know, they're likely going to be in and out, you know, what's maybe they're down the road, they're going to rent something more long-term, but this is like their stepping stone, right? And yeah. Come into the country. Like we've had many people that have applied that aren't even in this country yet. And they're like coming and they're like, reaching out and asking about, you know, the, like they're mentioning that they're either in like doing their master's or, you know, their PhD. And so there's actually a lot of mature students that don't necessarily want to particularly live in the vicinity of these schools. So they're fine, like you said, driving a little bit further out. But, you know, again, like they're coming in with very little credit history. So there are, you know, things that I do from a screening standpoint that may not require, you know, a, a credit check, but, you know, proof of making sure that they're enrolled in the school and like that kind of stuff. But I think like personally, my preference, like even for units, I know we just did two units to, to students. Actually, I don't even think one is even in this country yet, but they, they will leave at some point. I don't think that these are their permanent situations, mm-hmm. and that will allow, especially for anything that's rent controlled to reset the rents. I mean, again, that can change down the road, but right now, like you're you know, they're in and they're out probably in, you know, three, four years. Yeah. And, and the benefit is 
they're out at that point. They, and they're, they've established their education. They want to perform a career. They might have a co-op. They want to go elsewhere, travel. So the flexibility, as you said, it, it, there is going to be a vacancy. So it's, it's kind of, it is, it is there. The vacancy is set up and versus when we have a long-term tenant, you know, and that's, as you get back to like some investors had to dispose of their asset during the COVID because it was either rent to a long-term tenant. And I, I myself have seen it when I've driven around, it, it'll be student pockets and they'll see a family, you can tell, and they are not leaving that house for the next five to 10 years. They're raising their family there. And that landlord is probably burning right now because he or she has now committed to a 10 year commitment and there's no way that he's ever, and I'm obviously he or she's made money, is going to be making as much money as the next door neighbor who's got student rentals. It's a trade-off, right? You might have a little bit more headaches with students and educating them how to use the house and the fundamentals of things like laundry machines, et cetera. But, you know, the things that students want now versus five years ago are, are drastically different. But as, a, as, a, as an investor, you should know and be aligned with it. And if it means an extra 50 to $100 a room, do those things and, and that'll help you in the bottom line. Yeah, it is. It is definitely interesting. And, and like you said, there are some challenges. There are definitely some downsides to every single strategy. You named a few there. You know, obviously, you know, you're what covering expenses in the majority of them as well. I guess it depends on where you are and what the competition is like, but likely, you know, you're getting an all in price from the students. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like as a landlord, you're covering the hydro, the water. I mean, if there's gas, you're covering gas and, you know, whatever other expenses, likely lawn care as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to be, you're going to be putting down definitely a percentage for expenses on that asset, utilities, what we, you know, you couldn't, you can stru structure it whereby you can have a cap where I'm seeing that you just cap it at a certain dollar figure per room, knowing that kids are now gaming more using, you know, internet is a critical thing, high speed, you know, those things are very critical, but yeah, absolutely. You have to account for either property management and all in utilities and expenses. So there is a little bit higher cost of operations versus, you know, a long-term tenant where, you know, you, you're, they're taking care of the utilities, let's say if you have a duplex, you, you know, they're taking it. But what I like to structure is a cap, a dollar amount, and they agree to it. And after that, they have to split it, that amount, if it goes over. Yeah, that's a good idea. So you just say like, these are going to be the maximum amount of utilities that I will pay. This is based on the last, like, you know, 12, 24 months average or whatever that mm -hmm. is. And then anything over, then you go back to them for the difference. Yeah. I mean, if it depends on me, yeah, exactly. You know, it depends. I know some landlords who are doing it where they leave it to the tenants to uh, pay it. I know that utility companies are getting, pushing back on having non-landlords on, on the actual file. So it gets a little complicated and, you know, students are focused on simplicity and they just want to pay the rent and be done with it and parents especially too. So making it more convenient is, is easier for tenants. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess another pro that I can imagine as well, like you mentioned parents is the co-signing option with a lot of these parents that are also going to be on the hook should the student decide not to pay. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Experience Inspire Beach Resort. It is the resort that we have been building and it is ready. So if you are looking to host events, team building opportunities, retreats of your own, 
and just even potentially hang out with your friends or family or colleagues. You can rent out a cabin. You can rent out the entire resort. Inspire Beach Resort, it is an adults only. It is Canada's only themed resort specifically for adults. And the themes are really nice. They're really upscale. Like you have like the beach theme, you've got a rustic lodge theme and a vintage Hollywood. And we are adding more every year, but there is uh, an awesome space that is on the water to host your retreats, your events, your business meetings, planning meetings, all of that good stuff. So check that out, inspirebeachresorts.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, we all always get guarantors co-sign on the lease. And that helps a lot with a responsibility. You know, you, if a student starts acting up and, and starts, you know, you're catching them, not throwing out the garbage or, you know, smoking in the house, you can just be like, look, you know, your parents are on the lease. Let's have a conversation, not to be a tattletale or anything like that, but like it's, it's a responsibility there. You got to treat them like adults and the best conversation can be a parent with the student, with their child to say, Hey, you know, you're growing up, you need to act professionally and like an adult in the home take responsibility for your actions kind of thing yeah for sure now do you find that there's a certain number of bedrooms that's like the magic number in many markets i mean obviously it's gonna be different by market you know to some extent but is there like an average that you're like usually above this yeah it used to be it used to be seven seven and above so the eighth ninth or whatever room is the cash flow but with the market shifting so much to like potentially nine hundred dollars a room you're probably going to be in that five, five unit, five rooms in and up are going to be where that sixth, seventh room is going to be profitable. Obviously, numbers reflective of what you know rates you're paying and you know what the market rent is. But I'm I'm finding that five and up is going to be that sweet spot. That yeah, that's interesting. Now, what about furnishing the units, like putting a desk and a bed, like would that in a mattress, like would that help with the increase in rents? that you can get. Yeah, absolutely. So for furnishings, furnishing the rent, you got to be careful now with certain bylaws, like once it's considered a lodging and when you're offering that, the municipality tends to look at it in a different lens. And then there's certain rules on how the housing can be set up. And I won't go down that, that rabbit hole, but in general terms, as soon as you offer furnished rentals, like a, a frame, a desk, a lamp, a side table kind of thing, basics you have now opened up an entire arm for international students. They love that because mm -hmm. they have nothing. They have a suitcase. And if you can offer them services to get them access to a mattress, now you've done end-to-end -end services for them. So you can definitely charge more. I know some people who charge per piece of furniture that they like, they charge that on a daily rate. Yes. Uh, and then they say, okay, if you want it for eight months or a year, this is what the rate's going to be. I can embed it in rent or we can have a separate contract just for the furniture. So, yeah, I mean, definitely there's, there's, if you can offer it, for sure. If you have an extra and you have that space to just continue to leave it. And then some students who are willing to pay a premium have their own furniture. They like their style. They, they have their dresser, their, you know, everything that they want themselves will bring from home. And that's how it kind of sets up. I mean, it. I think it would be interesting to even have it on a different contract for the furniture. Like I think of like Easy Home, right? They're like that rental company <clears throat> that many, you know, people may choose to like. I and I, you know, and I, I don't want to like bash them, but like that's a really good business in the sense that like they're making a shitload of money off people, unfortunately or fortunately, I guess for them. But people renting, but like they're doing like 
TVs where I remember my sister-in-law and we told her never do this again when she was renting from there and it was like $70 a month for a TV. I'm like, we can just buy you a TV for like 200 and like you can pay us back slowly. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like, yeah. sometimes it's just like that convenience of it maybe and people just don't see the the daily rate or the monthly rate as much. However, I think, you know, for students, it could potentially be an option A, to increase as a, as a landlord uh, the income would be potentially do something that's outside of the RTA, right? Just like if you have a contract with parking, there's some loopholes, like yeah. there's a little bit of a gray zone, like the same yeah. thing like the furnishings, right? I think there might be something there that's on, on a separate contract. And then, you know, maybe something about like the damage and wear and tear and that kind of stuff on it. But I, I think a separate contract with the option, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And just be like, you know, if you have Ikea furniture, it's going to get beat up. Just expect it, you know, like, but you're going to get, it's going to pay itself over three, four times over the fact that, and I think the big thing you mentioned is that if you have international students, they have no credit history, they have nothing. So they, they have really barely anything that they can go ahead and do that. They might have cash and they, they usually have a flush of cash and they're willing to have that taken care of for them is the convenience of that they will pay a premium for. So if you can help them throughout that process, they will 100% pay, pay that premium for it. Yeah. Now, like, have you seen it being done? Like, do you know roughly like what people charge? I'm guessing it's what, like, just like a bed, a dresser, a mattress and a desk and chair. Is that pretty much what they need? That's pretty much it. Yeah, they might. That's exactly it. They might give them a, a mirror too, but beyond that's it. Like, they'll see them. Yes, exactly. Desk, chair. Pretty much it, lamp and side table, and then sometimes they don't. Even, they don't usually give them like lately because of like bed bugs and stuff like that. You won't even give them a mattress. You give them like access to where they can purchase it, just because you don't want to bring, you don't want to have that infestation. When you have a lot of people from overseas and or a lot of people just moving in and out, that bed bug problem infestation can be a problem. So, you know. I, I don't know many of landlords that, that tend to keep the mattresses. They just tend to, you'll see it like right around this time of year, or I should say it's around September and of August, you'll see individuals or you'll see outside tons of mattresses outside because people tend to, at their fourth year or the third year, they're just going to chuck them. They don't tend to use them. Yeah. But I wonder if that's something that you can just add as a separate fee too, right? Like your mattress. Yeah, you can. I think you yeah, can feel you should build it up. Yeah, I know a landlord in Waterloo that does that. And he's got a business where he's got an entire mattress business because he's got multiple apartments. And that's what he does. He just says, okay, what size bed do you need? I'll have the mattress delivered to you on the day of move-in. Come and pick it out the day before and it'll be delivered as part of a service uh, package. And he says that like, I think he's saying like 80% of, of his renters would choose it because they're able to see the mattress ahead of time. And it gets put into their room the day of moving or the day after something like that. Um, it's a, such a convenient factor. He just has the capacity of warehouse space and things like that to store all the mattress types and all that. But he's found an end-to-end solution that way for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, and especially with the high rates, the way that we're, you know, we're, we're all experiencing this. I think many investors are are feeling the pinch and you know, if there's some ways to to increase the cash flow and, and help somebody along the way, then why not? But but I really do believe that, you know, there's real estate and this is what many of us were doing for a long time. And then there's like creating additional income sources, business sources from that real estate and like, you know, renting furniture 
if you're a student rental investor, could be, you know, a whole other arm to increasing your cash flow. I know we're doing like a lot of midterm and short-term stuff, but, you know, there, there's likely some additional business arms. I mean, we're all entrepreneurs at the end of the day, rather than just being a landlord and being passive, that there there's likely some business and, you know, different income ideas that can be created from these types of times because we have to think outside the box. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's, and even with my, you know, multifamily investing for clients, we're finding that we're, we're coming to the table, similar to some of the guests you've had on the table, on the podcast before, we're coming to the conversation and coming to the table where we're talking about, let's be creative. Let's see how we can both find a solution. And if the buyer sees an opportunity that the seller can has maybe fed up with and doesn't see it. So, and that's that mirroring of, of two, two sides of, of the equation. And it's not so much a, a, a lose win. I feel like it's always a win. You know, the seller gets the price that they want or a deal. And then the buyer sees an opportunity where they can utilize where, what lens they have as maybe multiple streams of income where maybe uh, it's not necessarily what they want to do. And, you know, what we're finding is that the, we're finally seeing a small shift or a shift in people in the multifamily space are starting to come around with their pricing and starting to be a little bit more, not as objective to saying, okay, well, I'll be okay with a VTB or I'll be with something creative in the sense of, okay, we'll come down on the price on this condition, you know? So that to me is an indication of, of, of slowly coming to a balanced market and, and people are starting to, to still, as you said earlier, there are deals to be found. It's just about how you attack that, that problem. Yeah. I, I know before this podcast, we were talking about you negotiating a potential VTB with a sale for one of our students, mm -hmm. uh, investor students, which, you know, I don't think two years ago was really. I mean, of course, you'll have the odd one, but it wasn't as common of a conversation where they knew that they could likely even multifamily sell it with, you know, very little amount of conditions. And VTBs were, you know, if they didn't want to, for whatever reason, they, they could still sell it at a price and think times have changed. I think for the better, because many of us were waiting for this time to be able to negotiate and, you know, get creative on some of the deals that we can acquire now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I've had more, I've had more in the last, you know, the last month or so conversations with sellers interested in this space and saying, okay, well, I'm now ready to come back to the market because they're seeing obviously what's in the media and what's happening. And they're understanding the value perception of their asset is no longer the value that people are willing to pay for because it's, it's transactional. And the housing preferences or the investment preferences for individuals, it just, it, the, as you said, the interest rates just don't make these deals make sense anymore. And if you're in a position and the ones that are selling, and if you're in a position where you have to sell, that's where, you know, you, you, you're going to, you're not getting a dollar for dollar value. You're getting like 80 cents to the dollar on what you're looking to sell. But if you have some patience, then, you know, you're able to negotiate and willing to do that. For sure. And on a side note, what I've found is that properties in like the 400 max to 800 range are selling like, you know, low days on market. They are, you know, going at asking or slightly over. 
that's what I'm finding. That range where the first time owners or even investors are getting in and properties, row housing and semis are starting to, like the demand for those are starting to pick up versus some of the detached homes are kind of staying on the market for 28 days, a little bit longer. So we're seeing a slight shift that way, but going back to your point, negotiation is there. So for anybody who's listening, making, making offers, making multiple offers is where I think the market's heading and just throwing that dart at the board and just saying, okay, don't be offended. Just like throw it out there because you don't know everyone's position and being, being that hyper-focused on saying, let's get the deal under contract for the right price is very important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it is interesting to see how the times are changing. And are you seeing that like the ones that are in that four to 800 K mark are you like, you know, or starter homes or, or whatnot, I guess, depending on which area, are they first time buyers or are they downsizers or is it still too early to tell? Yeah, a good question. So I've had two scenarios where people are getting out of something they've over leveraged. So they know what's coming down the line and they're selling their million dollar property and they're downsizing. I've heard that already. Someone like an Oldfield did that and they're downsizing because they see what's coming down the line. Like, okay, let's just downsize. And they're willing to pay full ask. And at the same time, majority I'm finding is renters who their rent have gone up so much that their mortgage payment is equivalent to what they're paying in rent. So they're just getting in at a property where they actually own it at that point. Majority of them are, yeah, the first time homeowners are just saying, look, I'm getting out of the rental space. I'm tired of being in a condo. I'll get in, I'll get a little bit of a backyard and at my own home. It might need a little bit of work. We're finding major rental homes that are like meant for, you know, over $100,000, in rentals are sitting on the market longer versus the ones that need cosmetic lifts are tending to, to fly off the rails real quickly. Okay. Okay. That's really interesting. So what areas do you cover? Like if somebody wanted to, you know, go out and view some properties with you, what areas do you cover and like what types of strategies are you, a lot of your clients coming with? Yeah. So I'm essentially uh, west of Burlington all the way out to the Niagara region. I cover and uh, including, you know, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge. I have properties myself in, you know, Hamilton, Bramford, Cambridge, myself. So I'm very familiar with those areas. My strategy is uh, looking for underutilized buildings and mostly, you know, multi-unit, mostly multi-unit or conversion projects where you can take uh, a single family home and convert into a duplex, tri or four or, you know, fourplex. And then looking for, you know, investors looking to do that. At the same time, multi-unit uh, buildings, five and up considered commercial. And looking at opportunities there for investors to see where we can use the highest and best use for those buildings and targeting investment strategies a little bit longer term and higher capital to convert that asset. To, you know, even using the CMA, CMLI select program to improve the, to improve their balance sheet, essentially. Okay. Okay. Awesome. That's perfect. So guys, reach out to Jamil. I don't know if we need to do a lightning round. I know you were just recently on. We were talking about something different, but I'm just going to ask you a bunch, like a, a few different questions that you're going to try to give me an, an answer. It won't be like your typical lightning round questions. I'm just going to make them up as I go. Welcome to your midterm tip of the week. Are you often traveling for work and need a place to stay, but do not have the time or capacity to search endlessly on those online platforms? Midterm rental properties 
has been created to ensure that someone exactly like yourself who is looking for a quality assured stay but would like the assistance and a concierge white glove service to obtain this property gets the service they need. When you sign up with the property through Midterm Rentals, we ensure your stay is all-inclusive from collecting your dry cleaning to setting up a local gym membership to having a private chef deliver your food. For more information on how we can service you at your next midterm rental stay, please visit www.midtermrentalproperties.com. Okay. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay, here's question number one. If you had to buy something strategy-wise today, what would it be? It'd definitely be strategy-wise. It'd definitely be multifamily and probably the, I know it sounds traditional, but probably the Burr model. Probably the Burr model. Okay. All right. Number two, would you prefer to have JVs in projects and many more units or less JVs in control over your properties fully? Which one would it be? Yeah, I'd probably say probably more control over my own properties. I have JVs and I'm at a different stage, but yeah. Okay. All right. And number three, if you had to make a prediction, you know, in 12 months from now of what the market from a real estate standpoint would look like, what do you think that would be? Just a prediction. We can't hold you anyone to it. No one knows. Yeah. Yeah. Prediction is, I think we are going to see a further adjustment in pricing. And I think that it'll be a lot more into a buyer's market versus balance at this point. And I think, yeah, that's where we're going to be heading to in the next 12 months. I have to make a prediction. Okay. All right. Awesome. Jamel, thank you so much for being on the show. What's the best place for my listeners to reach out? Absolutely. Thanks. So you can catch me at on social media, all the social media platforms at J-A-M-I-L-R-A-H-E-M uh, -E as in Mary, T-U-L-A on Facebook, YouTube, so Instagram. I'm usually pretty prominent on Instagram and on my website at jamilramtulo.com. Amazing. You can call me 289-401-1566. Okay. All right. So that's awesome. Thanks for your insights. Thanks. Thanks for all your help as well. Jamil is our go-to realtor for many of our projects that we do. So reach out to Jamil and you guys are in great hands. Jamil, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.